Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Look a little nicked up. Gash on my head, Bruce. You can probably see it there. Clearly. Yeah, I sure can. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, I play uh, pickup hockey once a week with a group of people and um, took about the hardest hit of my life in a hockey game. Um, it was, uh, I was, there was a, we were, it was a line rush. We we're heading down the ice. A guy makes a back pass to me and I try to one time it on net. And uh, I'm on my feet long enough to see me. I've missed the net on my one timer shot. And all of a sudden, one of my teammates who was also going for the puck at the same time, we collide face first. I see his face right in my face. Our helmet smash, my cage smashes into uh, my head. And I went down and uh, Bruce, I thought like when I got up, blood would be coming from every part of my body. I, I honestly thought like, uh, how can I not be concussed? But I, but I wasn't. I had no symptoms at all of, of concussion. And, and I've been through uh, as a minor hockey coach concussion training protocol. So I'm somewhat aware of what those would be. But I did have this nice gash on my head to, to uh, as proof to tell the tale of my uh, manly hockey playing there. <laughs> Cage probably saved your bacon, eh? even as it did, did cause you a little nick there. Bruce, I would have had a broken nose. And um, last game that we played, actually, someone had one of those half shields. A lot uh-huh. of adult players wear the half shield. And a puck, I shot I shot the puck, actually. He deflected it off its stick and hit him in the mouth. Uh-huh. And he was in the hospital. Fortunately, he didn't lose any teeth. But I lost it. I got slashed in the face years ago playing hockey. Lost my front tooth. And since then, I've worn a, a full shield. I, I just think for an adult playing pickup hockey, the full shield is the only uh, sane way to go. So, How about and, neck guard? Do you wear a neck guard? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wear, good, I, good I wear on you. My wife I mean, is it's all in on neck guards. She's constantly railing on how can they possibly play without neck guards. She's terrified someone's going to. Well, my cousin died, Bruce. Like, oh, yeah? That's the, the famous, you know, the, the, the sad story. Uh, Michael Cameron Arena is named after my cousin. Her cousin? Was, yeah. A fantastic young Arena. man, 19 years old. And, oh, uh, my. His, yeah, and he was he had his neck cut in a hockey game and died. So that's kind of a heavy thing for uh, our our family to have lived with. But no um, kidding. Yeah, I remember Mar- I remember uh, Mark Goodkey of the U Alberta Golden Bears in a pickup game, blocking a shot and they hit him right on the windpipe and killed him. Yeah. So yeah. I wear a neck guard. <laughs> Let's yeah, put it no, that way. No doubt. And everyone in minor hockey uh, wears a neck guard largely because of Michael. So that, that's what spurred it on, the, the rule change, mm-hmm. the, the change in equipment. All right. Let's talk about um, the Oilers, Bruce. We're kind of in a, yeah. a dull drummy kind of time with the Edmonton Oilers right now. Um, but there is some news some stirrings, mainly drummed up by our friend Bob Stoffer on Oilers Now, who's always good at drumming up the interest. And and we we saw Bob's incredible ability to drum up interest in the ratings that uh, Kurt Levin's reported this weekend. Bob's show, uh, which is, and these were total numbers over a two-hour period. Uh, Bob's show just crushed it in the Empton market in terms of uh, viewership. So congratulations to Bob, who 
who uh, not only is good at, at stirring up controversy, but is he ever connected and a hardworking guy? Oh, yeah. And he, his, uh, it's second to none for Oilers News because he, he he works for the team. He's got inside information on the team, obviously. And one of the things he was talking about this week got me riled up a little bit. And this is the notion of uh, Oliver ekman Larson uh, yeah. being on the trade market and possibly being a target for the Edmonton Oilers. And... Um, so I, I've written about this, but I'm curious about your take on it, and, and I'll get to what I thought. But I'm just what what was what's your thought on this whole thing, Bruce? My take is kind of similar to where I was on PK Subban way back in 2016. Uh, this this one you can file under articles I intended to write but never wrote and wish I had written, because I think in that in retrospect my opinion at the time unpublished was correct that. Uh, much as I admired the player, that the contract was just too big a chunk to deal with. At that time, PK was making $9 million a year, and he was, I think, by over a million dollars, the highest paid defenseman in the National Hockey League. And I liked the player, but the cost, the twin cost of what it would have cost to acquire him, which the rumor at that time was Dreisaitl, one of Nurse or Kleffbaum, and the fourth overall pick, that was uh, eventually turned into Yassipuliarvi uh, with some variation that Oilers would get the number nine back from Montreal or not. But the cost of acquiring Subban from Montreal was immense. And then the second cost would be this $9 million cap hit stretching on into eternity. And as good as the player is, I just thought the cost was too high for what you could expect for the huge number of years remaining. And I'll say the same thing about Oliver ekman Larson at eight and a quarter million dollars for seven more years. That is just a gigantic commitment. And it's one of those, I mean, it's one of those ones where if you make the wrong guess, you're sunk. What do you do? I mean, <clears throat> let's, let's say that this year, his step back in 2019-20, uh, which was noticeable, is real. And he's starting you know, the, the the second half of his career decline at eight and a quarter million dollars. And no doubt you're talking about trade costs of giving, giving up one of your, you know, let's say Oilers trade cleft bomb for him. And, you know, right away you're paying an extra four million dollars for an upgrade, supposedly, but how big of an upgrade and for how long is it an upgrade before the, the younger guy surpasses him potentially? So to me, that's, uh, that's uh, I mean, I'm naturally conservative when it comes to big trade, so it probably won't surprise you that uh, that one to me is, uh, I, I wouldn't want to go there, not without big cap retention. I mean, and I don't think that's in the playbook for Arizona. What got me a little bit concerned about Bruce, this, and, and I'm just, honestly, I'm dead set against this mm-hmm. for, the, for the reasons that you've spelt out. Um, I think there's a chance Ekman Larson Let's what is he earning eight eight point two five million a year and then seven more years on that deal seven more years starting this year, so so this year he he probably performed about um, three to four million dollars under that in terms of his his performance, and I I need to add a proviso or a caveat there like I don't watch this player every day no. I don't. I don't. I'm not an expert on this player or on any of the other number one defensemen in the NHL or 
I don't watch them enough to, to have a, you know, to really say with a tremendous amount of certainty what their value is. So it could well be that I'm missing something on this player. And I don't know his story well enough. I don't know his on-ice play well enough. And that, that it would be a really good idea to trade for this player. Like, it, I could be wrong on this. Mm-hmm. But Matt, everything, I just like, this is everything about this. This is telling me, like, don't go here. And one of the big, one of the things that got me worried was the talk that Dave Tippett had coached Ekman Larson in the past and might be bullish on this player. And that's the kind of connection that we've seen blow up in the face of, you know, Peter Shrelly, Milan Lucic. Does that ring a bell? How about Ken Hall and Andreas Athanasio? Does that ring? A, does that also set off a little bit of an alarm for you? This, How about this Dave idea, Tippett and Mike Smith. Dave Tippett and Mike Smith. Yeah, this past connection to the player. He may be remembering Oliver Ekman Larson right. when Oliver Ekman Larson was actually in the top fifteen NHL defensemen. Was actually a true number one defenseman as as Brian Burke still called him on Oilers. Now as Brian Lawton still called Ekman Larson. These people smart hockey guys who watch much more of the NHL than I do are still calling Ekman Larson that. But Louis DeBrus didn't. And I thought Louis got it right, saying, well, his partly right. Louis was saying Ekman Larson's offense is maybe still there. He's still a good, but his defense, he's wondering about that. And, you know, from what we've seen from my own viewings of Ekman Larson, I haven't been blown away at all in the games that the Oilers have played Arizona. He hasn't stood out. Has, has he played better than Goligoski or Jarmelson? Like, I don't know. I don't think so. He hasn't He hasn't been that player that just, you know, that kind of jumps out like a Chris Pronger off the screen or some of these like Shea Theodore in the playoffs. If this was Shea Theodore, you know, but this Ekman Larson is 29 years old. He's got this huge contract. One more thing that worries me, Bruce, is, and I don't know if there's much support at all for this trade. Um in Oiterville. Um, there has been a lot of support for Ekman Larson in the past. I remember some people oh, yeah. recommending Love a Dreisaitl Darnell Nurse. Dreisaitl and Darnell Nurse for Ekman Larson just a few years ago. What if we had made that trade? Yikes. Yeah. Well, that was the that was the Subban package, more or less. Yes. Was, know, same, uh, same, same people pushing putting I, that forward for Subban. And go ahead, sorry. Sorry, I'd rather be paying Leon Drysaddle eight million dollars than Oliver Ekman Larson, and I do I do like the idea of a stud defenseman, but the thing is, I mean, he's the number one defenseman now, and maybe he is for two more years. Eight and a quarter million dollars runs for seven years into his mid thirties. I mean, unless he's Nicholas Lidstrom, that is a huge, huge, huge gamble. So I did, uh, because I don't watch these defensemen, Bruce, I tried to put together just some numbers that might help guide me in my thinking, you know, about the various defensemen and where they rate against each other. Where does Ekman Larson rate? So I looked at a number of statistical factors, and I'm just going to quickly run through it with you. Um, I looked at uh, uh, points points per 60, even strength. Uh, Points per 60, power play. Shots per 60, even strength. So I want it because offense is such an important part of the game. Puck moving such an important part of the game. I wanted the three numbers that I thought represented offense. And also getting pucks on net. There's so many goals scored now from the point, the defenseman getting the puck through on net and it deflected. I wanted to, I thought that was significant enough to include it. And then the other three things were all time on ice metrics. 
And time on ice doesn't tell us the performance of a player, right. but what that what it tells us is how much does his own coach, whose whole livelihood is winning, how much does that coach trust that player to help him win? Because mm-hmm. that coach has got to win, and or he'll lose his job. So he's got a huge incentive to get the right call. And I looked at even strength time on ice. I looked at shorthanded time on ice as kind of a to, to eliminate just the pure offensive guys because they won't right. be used on the PK from my list. And mm-hmm. then I then I hit upon what I think is actually uh, was a, a, I was really happy with this when it popped in my head. Overtime time on ice, oh, yeah. Yeah, three that's... on three, Bruce. Because mm-hmm. who are you going to put out there you, if mm-hmm. someone's a real number one defenseman? He's going to get a ton of ice time right. in overtime. He's going to be out there. So, you know, if you look at, for instance, if you look at Corsi or Fenwick or even they, they'll tell you, like, if you look at the highest percentage, they'll have a lot of defensemen like uh, Nick Holden and John Merrill and Brett Kulak. Um, I wonder how much time on ice those guys get in overtime. So, huh. so some of these on ice stats, I think, can be misleading in terms of identifying who the top 10 were. So here's the top 10 defensemen that I identified using this statistical thing, because I think any statistical analysis has to pass the smell test. So the number one, using this way of ranking defensemen, number one guy is Roman Yossi. Then the list is Chris Letang, Eric Carlson, Brent Burns, John Carlson, Morgan Riley, Mark Giordano, Victor Hedman, Alex Peter Angelo, and Seth Jones. So pretty good list. Oh, how many years is this, David? Two years for two, oh, two years. years. Okay. So it might so players like Burns and Carlson who maybe dropped off a bit this past year are still a little higher on the list. But uh, so right. I was pretty. You know, I'm not saying Carson. I'm not saying that's the right order for those players, but it's kind of the right. It's close to probably the ten right guys. There's maybe a few guys missing. Shea Theodore is not on the list. Where did uh, Theodore rank? I can find it. But um, there's Miro Haskinen on that list. Holy moly! Well. Okay. He's come alive in the playoffs. Oh, he's actually number 28, Bruce, on the list. Yeah, I'm not surprised. He's been coming on since he got in the league. And Quinn, like Quinn Hughes was like 32 mm-hmm. or 33. Now, here's a, here's the eye-opener. Oscar Clefbaum. Uh, what do we got here for Clefbaum? 14. Oscar Clefbaum okay. was 14th using this. And uh, 15, 16. Number 18, Darnell Nurse. Oscar Clefbaum, 14. Darnell Nurse. 18. And where does Ekman Larson, using the same system that seemed to identify some pretty good defensemen, I have to say, 57th. Whoa. 57th on the list. So, Ooh. and behind, and behind Jacob Chikrin on his own team. So, okay. I'm not saying that uh, that Ekman Larson isn't a really good hockey player and that he can't rebound mm-hmm. and again become maybe a number one defenseman, but. Uh, from what I've seen, my own eye test from seeing them every time they play the Oilers, which is a lot, and mm-hmm. from these these numbers, I'm not, I don't want to see the Oilers take on that contract because I think that con like let alone give up a first pick, this contract yeah. I believe has negative value, and and again I could be wrong, but I'm hesitant to, I'm not excited that, about the idea. That's the concern. I mean. The, the- the problem with those contracts like that is if they do have a negative value, that negative value can be a very large number if things go sideways. Yes. Right? I mean, you talk about negative value, people complain about the Chris Russell contract. Well, it has $4 million at most of negative value left in it, whereas the Milan Lucic contract had $24 million of negative value left in it in terms of the cap hit that was outstanding on it at the time they moved it. And so... 
uh, Ekman Larson with seven years to go is what fifty eight million dollars. So on that, obviously, he's going to cover some of that. But whether he comes close to covering all of it or more than all of it, like how do you how do you over how do you play over eight million dollars worth of value? You practically have to be an MVP or Norris Trophy candidate to uh, <clears throat> to achieve that. And I'm not sure I see that in this particular player. And I do like the player. I think he's terrific. Yes. I think if he was just, you know, if he was like a $5 million player for four more years or $6 million player for four years, you'd think, yeah, go for it. You give up something to get him. But so, yeah. and there's free agents, Bruce. So Tory Krug, he's, he ranks about 25th on my list here. Mm-hmm. He's a UFA. Tyson Berry. I think he's a UFA, Tory Krug. Yes. Tyson, Tyson mm-hmm. Berry is a UFA. He ranked 32nd. So you could get, Right now, I'm pretty sure if you offered Tyson Berry um, $6 million a year for three years, that that's probably the high end, I'm guessing, for Tyson Berry right now. He's probably going to get a one-year deal. You can get three years of Tyson Berry, who, yeah. according to, to, to the recent obvious kind of statistics, not advanced analytics, like the secret advanced analytics that the NHL has and nobody else has access to, uh, Tyson Berry ranks publicly available numbers. He ranks higher than Ekman Larson. So I just, why wouldn't you just sign Tyson Berry to two or three years or Tory Krug, if you could, to even sign Tory Krug seven years for 6.5 or $7 million. You're better off than Ekman Larson at eight. Well, depending on what you'd have to give up for him. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think Krug is in that ballpark and I don't think seven year contracts are going to be in the cards for hardly anybody. I agree. Uh, I wouldn't. This, I wouldn't do that year. with Krug either. Yeah, yeah. Is Krug Krug's a UFA? Is he not? I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I've so so there would be no transactional cost of getting him. There would just be his his contract. I think Tory Krug might get a long term contract. It's some fairly big money. So that's why I'm putting that in out Boston, there. In Boston. Yeah, I don't think the Oilers are going to sign. Yeah, Tory Krug. He wouldn't come here, and I doubt. I don't think he'd come here. But Tyson Berry might, and. Um, that's that's what I'm hoping to see Oilers head in that direction. Bruce, one of the um, one of the impacts of the Ekman Larson news was kind of a a wave of discontent, which um, a fairly large number of Oilers fans have about Darnell Nurse, oh, and and uh, based on his playoffs, based on Darnell Nurse playoffs, I can see why people are unhappy. He, I mean, he was just he was terrible in the playoffs. His defensive play was a mess. And I can see, but that's just four games under weird circumstances. And 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 Darnell Nurse ranks again 18th on this list of key uh, statistical indicators by my own eye test and our own advanced stats. We're watching every scoring chance. We're looking who's to blame, who isn't to blame. Darnell Nurse has been the Oilers' best defenseman uh, for some time, based on our own observation uh, in terms of creating high danger scoring chances and defending them. He's been slightly better than any other defenseman in the last few years on the Oilers, especially anyone playing tough minutes. So I don't get it. What's your thought? Well, I mean, people want a stud defenseman. Well, uh, Darnell Nurse, if you look at some of the numbers, and certainly the usage numbers, uh, he he really stands out in this department. I mean, uh, I looked at him over the last three years, and uh he leads the NHL in games played, tied with just one other player, Jeff Petrie. So he's durable. Oiler. Very durable. Never missed a game in those three years. 
uh, and the Oilers played one or two more games than, than a lot of teams this year. So, the, I mean, it's really close. There's a lot of guys at 230-plus games, but he's at 235. Uh, number two in the entire NHL behind only Drew Doughty in even-strength time on ice for the last three years. And for all the griping about Nurse's contract and future contract and the one after that and all of, all the money that he's supposed to be holding out for, he's been the fourth or fifth highest paid defenseman on the Oilers for all of those three years. And uh, only now is he with his newest two-year deal, or the show-me deal, I think, that uh, Holland signed him to. And that might be, you know, a little higher than you'd like to see. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, over the up to this point, he's been a bargain. And he's just delivered like like very large numbers. He's been on the on the ice for almost the most goals for, most goals against. It's all sort of an offshoot of the amount of ice time that he gets. But the fact is that he's had three veteran NHL coaches in that time, and Todd McClellan, Ken Hitchcock, and Dave Tippett, all of whom have relied heavily on him and used him in, in big minutes. This year he was partnered with a with a rookie for the entire season, basically. And they played the toughest minutes against the uh, against the competition. Uh, they played a lot of minutes with uh, with McDavid, and I mean that obviously helps on the on the offensive side of things, but it doesn't necessarily help on the, on the defensive side of the th- things. And the, the fact remains that when coaches go power on power, which is often a mutual decision of both coaches, whether it's a home game or an away game. They like to go power on power. And when the Oilers went power on power, Dave Tippett's first choice typically was Nurse and Bear to go with his power line. And, you know, at some point you have to put a little bit of stock in the coach's opinion. Of course, the the, 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 the naysayer will say, well, that's because they didn't have any other choices and the Oilers' defense just isn't that good, yada, yada. But actually during the regular season, the Oilers' defense was all right. You know they weren't they weren't great, but they were far from the worst in in the NHL. And you know the coach did have other choices, but uh, nurses have been a rock solid top four D man for you know three years running. You can argue first pairing, second pairing, but I don't think you can argue that he's not a top four. And it's hard to imagine. I mean, look at it from an outsider's point of view. If you were to say, okay, Edmonton Oilers have a chance to go out and get this player because he's on the trade market, and He's, uh, you know, he's a durable player that plays 23 minutes a night, kills penalties. He's tough. He's mobile. He's got his teammates' backs. Uh, he scores points. You know, like uh, Nurse is uh, uh, in the top 20 in the NHL and even strength scoring over that three-year span. Uh, you know, it may not be traditional offense, but it's offense. He gets he gets his points, he gets involved, he creates chaos, the orders take advantage of it, put the puck in the net sometimes. And if you were if he was on another team and you you'd look at all those those shiny points and you wouldn't think of, well, look at this this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing that he doesn't do or he does poorly or he's never gonna learn or he ices the puck too much or you know, he can't make a pass or you know, all these things that I think People see the warts, and at a certain point, they just overcome the the strong points. He's a high event player. He makes mistakes. He makes good plays. You got to see both of them for what for for what they are. And I think some of the some of the naysayers are so focused on the mistakes. And I will grant you that in the playoffs, there was more mistakes and good plays. He played poorly, and most of the Oilers' defense played poorly in the playoffs. And it's one of the reasons they're main reasons that they're out. 
Yeah, he uh, he was just he was horrible, wasn't he, in the playoffs, Bruce? Game, well, game three, game, uh, game three may have been the worst game that he's played in in those three years, honestly. When he was laying down on the ice, trying to trying to protect the lead by by laying down in the passing and shooting lanes rather than being proactive. And proactive is his game, and to a fault. I mean, he'll pursue the guy rather than than uh, guard the net front. And that's a major criticism of him, and it's, and it's a fair one. Yeah, we does, saw that a lot. That. He does that. He yeah. wins a lot of puck battles. He wins a lot of races to pucks. But he gets beaten by guys getting in behind him sometimes. And it's... Uh, you know, it's it's a part of the, his game. You wonder if it's ever going to come around. But I'll say he's still only 25 years old, right? I mean, this is not a player who's achieved his peak yet. And, and uh, there's, you know, there's one or two things maybe he needs to calm down a little bit and and, and maybe change his focus that boxing out the opponents uh, with extreme prejudice is maybe the thing that he does best. So do it. There was one play Bruce it just sticks in my mind from the playoffs you probably remember this I I think it was Taves goal can't remember which game the big goal in the third period but mm -hmm. there was a face-off and for some reason Bear and Nurse were on the wrong sides yep. they had Nurse on the right side and Bear on the left side and Bear so, tipped it in mm -hmm. yeah and so yeah and so the they lose the face-off point shot Bear but Bear was essentially left covering two guys in front yes. of the net because neither Dreisaitl the center nor Nurse Mm -hmm. Nurse followed the guy up, and I don't know if that was a plan play by the coaches. Was this another example of the Oilers coaching staff overthinking and overcoaching? Because Nurse goes charging up after the guy who had the puck instead of retreating to the net. And what happens is poor Ethan Bears in front of the net with two Chicago Blackhawk players. Can't get on either of them, so he ends up lunging for the puck and tipping yep. it in his own net. And and. Yep. So dry, one of dry settler nurse had to be there. Neither of them were there. And it was like, what, like, who's to blame for that? Was it coaching? Was it the players? Like, but it was the kind of mistake that we saw. We probably saw five to 10 goals against the Oilers in the playoffs that were foobar like that. Mm -hmm. that you just couldn't, what the hell's going on here with this team? Yeah. And nurse was in the middle of half of those goals. Yeah, a number of them. So, sure. so that's why I can see why. As I said at the time, I can finally see, like, the, the people who who dislike Nurse's game the most, I could finally see what they were saying because all of those warts grew about three inches in the playoffs, and uh, they were very noticeable. So, but that's not the Nurse that I usually see and have been seeing for the last few years. And I think, I, again, is Ekman Larson a better player than Darnell Nurse? I think it's highly debatable right now. Is he a better player than Oscar Clefbaum? I also think that's a debatable point. And so, no, I don't think you're you're greatly improving the team if you were going to make that trade. So, I don't want to see it. Goalies, Bruce. Mm -hmm. Kurt Levins had a post, our colleague Kurt. And uh, let me just call it up here. He was he was he was talking about team need and this has been a discussion that uh fans have had like what is the main team need is it is it changing you know changing the defense bringing in a winger from mcdavid is it a goalie is it a third line center and i think um i was actually encouraged by kurt's post because the it sounds like like kurt has sources so mm -hmm. it sounds like the oilers have ended up with their thought being the number one need is a goalie a number one goalie, either to supplant Koskinen or to challenge Koskinen. And Kurt's post got in, 
got into an interesting idea of actually supplanting Koskinen, which is challenging because Koskinen has Koskinen has two years left and he has a no movement clause on his contract. I do believe. I don't think it's just no trade, and um, so Koskinen would have to want to move. Plus, you'd have to want to move the guy, mm-hmm. and so the thought of moving out, like let's say bringing in uh, Matt Murray from Pittsburgh, or um, Marc-Andre Fleury from Vegas, two goalies who have had weaker numbers the last two years, uh, last couple years than Miko Koskinen and Matt. Uh, they were they were kind of names discussed in Kurt's column. I wasn't thrilled with that notion at all of trying to hit a home run with goalies that have struggled. I'm not against bringing one of those goalies in if you can make it work with Koskinen, but are they better than Koskinen? I don't I don't know. What's your thought? Yeah, well, it sounds like Oilers were in on the Matt Murray discussion, but the you know the scuttlebutt is that the the price was too high, so they pulled back, which is good that you have a you know you have a GM that won't get fixated on got to get this guy no matter what you know. Yeah. Uh, like Trelli with Lucic, for example, um, and that uh, uh, you know you 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 have to sort of say this this is the price that we're willing to pay and no higher. And I mean we don't know Matt Murray's a restricted free agent one year from uh, uh, unrestricted with arbitration rights. We don't know where the player's at, what his demands are, uh, but he's a you know a six-year goalie with two Stanley Cup rings, and you know he's got a lot of bargaining chips in his corner, so. That's uh, uh, that's one, and I mean, just because they pulled back doesn't mean that Pittsburgh might not come back and say, "Okay, we couldn't find a a good offer, so we're going to lower our asking price a little bit." Maybe not in those words, but you know, I mean, it, it, they both teams could circle back to him. Uh, in case of Matt Murray, you know, his numbers from the first three years of his career and his second three years are distinctly different. He was a much better stopper. Uh, as a younger goalie than he has been in the last three years, which is kind of unusual, but that's where he is. And Pittsburgh's not had as much success those last three years. And what, how much one feeds the other, who knows? But uh, Matt Murray hasn't been winning games for them single-handedly, let's put it that way. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, there's every chance. Sounds like uh, Vegas is going to sign Leonard to a... Five years at five million is sort of the scuttlebutt yeah. on that, and they can't afford him without moving um, on from Flurry. I don't think they can afford twelve million for two goalies, but they probably can afford to eat two or three million of Flurry's contract if they move on from him. If they decide Leonard's our man, uh, let's uh, uh, either eat some money or take a contract back. And I mean, you know, that's where you could say, well, maybe Fleury for Koskinen is sort of basis for a trade, but the Oilers would have to come up with an extra two and a half million in cap space for that move, which is pretty, pretty arguable as to how much an upgrade that is for 35 year old Marc-Andre Fleury with two years to run at 7 million. Like, I mean, talk about negative contract values. That may be another example of that. Yeah, in the last uh, two years, for even strength save percentage, uh, mm-hmm. Koskinen and Flurry are tied. Mm-hmm. And Koskinen's a younger goalie. Um, still, uh, he's trending up. Flurry is an older goalie trending down. Mm-hmm. Um, Flurry's a much more expensive goalie. So this would be 
I don't know. Like I, it doesn't, the idea of it doesn't thrill me, put it that way. I, I, there's, especially when the market, like when you have, you know, all these goalies that are going to be coming available, there's, there's talk of Anton Hudobin, um, Thomas Grice, Darcy Kemper, um, just looking at the other lists, uh, Antti Ranta, Antti Ranta, um, Kurt mentioned Peter Mrazek, um, and, and the list goes, it's, it's, there's Corey Crawford, who's a UFA. There's Matt Murray, who's out there still. And I don't mind, like, Matt Murray. I just don't think the acquisition price, I th- I'm glad Holland is holding right. the line. I don't think he's worth that much, you know, because he might go to arbitration, get a big figure. Then then he's worth, then he has negative value. Then he's not worth anything because you're paying him too much, essentially. It's, he's costing you based on his performance. So I, I don't... I don't want to see that big ticket goalie. The big reputation goalie scares me. Mm-hmm. Oh. The big oh. reputation goalie. And the big reputation defenseman scares me. The, you know, I don't want to pay for reputation. We did that with Milan Lucic. Most of the guys are paying for past performance. You want to pay for future performance. And that's where, if you look at the Oilers and all the big investments they've made over the years, all the good ones have been when they've invested in a 21 22-year-old guy coming out of his entry-level contract, like McDavid, Drysaddle, Nugent Hopkins, Hall, Everly. You know, those contracts could all be defended on the basis of what they actually did in the years that followed as being uh, value or very close to value. And all the contracts they signed with older guys coming in that had, you know, reputations for what they did elsewhere all blew up in their faces. And so that that's uh, I mean Barrett, if they haven't learned Spain, that lesson Pugliot, by now. Sekra. Lucic. Lucic, yeah. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it's been one disaster after the next. And um in this in this cap situation in the NHL, I just don't they've got to avoid doing it. So this is this is a fraught time for Kent Hall and he's got yeah. some he's got some landmines to avoid. And, uh, you know, I think that's it. Again, I'm encouraged by the fact that I think they have identified the real, the real place. If you're going to spend, let's say, four to five million dollars on a player, let's say the owners have room to bring in one player at four to five million dollars. I think it is probably another goalie because um, we don't know if Koskinen can get it done in the playoffs. We don't know if he's going to continue to be consistently good in the regular season as he was this year. And that's a really important, huge position. And if the Oilers can, can get the right guy, let's say who gets a 920 safe percentage in the regular season, they will make the playoffs with that. Oh, yeah. And, they, and then they have two really good options in the playoffs to go to. And I think that uh, the defensive situation's going to be handled internally by players like Caleb Jones, Evan Bouchard, Philip Broberg. Dmitry Samarukov, who's off to a great start in the KHL this year, William Logason. You've got to trust in your prospects to solve that issue. Now, I'm not saying maybe you don't move out one of the top guys and bring in on a short-term deal someone else to replace that guy in the short term. But you you don't try to solve that long-term by trading for a big-money player. Long-term, you solve that internally. And McDavid's wing, I don't think is necessarily solved with a big-money player either because I think you're going to find the unique player who fits in with McDavid might not cost as much might be the kind of the wingers who surround Sidney Crosby and Pittsburgh who are in the two to four million dollar range not the six to seven million dollar range 
So I like, I, I do, I think they have identified the correct need if Kurt's post is right. Do you agree with that or what's your thought? Well, I got, I think an upgrade on Mike Smith, uh, as you say, another goalie with a 915, 920 save percentage, uh, and they're a lock for the playoffs. And like you say, also good choices come playoff time. Uh, I'm looking at, with great interest at that Arizona situation with the uh, supposed uh, movement. And they've got two good goalies. They've actually got three good goalies. And I think they'll be moving one and they'll use Aiden Hill as a backup. And they'll keep one of their goalies probably. They have uh, uh, Darcy Kemper, two years to run at four and a half million cap hit. Antti Ranta, one year to run at four and a quarter million cap hit. But Ranta, uh, uh, one of the um, uh, impediments for him being traded is that they only owe him two and a quarter million dollars in real money. So from an Arizona perspective, because he's been prepaid uh, on his contract, uh, he's sort of one of those guys that's, you know, bigger cap hit than actual cash owing, which is the same sort of rationale that the orders have for trying to trade, say, Chris Russell. If you trade Chris Russell for anti-Ranta as a sort of a basis for your trade, as I suggested in the past, well, the $2.5 million head start that you had on Chris Russell's salary is almost offset by the $2 million head start that Arizona has on uh, Ranta's. Whereas if you traded Russell for, for and then again, this is blue sky, but you trade Russell for uh, Kemper, Arizona saves $3 million in real money because they're paying the new guy uh, you know, a million and a half compared to four and a half and uh, and for just one year. So they're, um, and they have the cap hit, you know, they're still, they're still inflating their salary cap. So they're meeting the minimum, but they're actually lowering their expenses by a significant amount. So that's, that's kind of a logical trade candidate, assuming that Daryl Cates continues his past record of, uh, you know, paying the difference on uh, contracts, it's like having a cheat code when you're when you're a GM making trades. If you've got a G, an owner that's got deep enough pockets to uh, to just absorb uh, losses like that, then you can play it to your advantage. It's it's one thing to be the owner um, who will spend to the cap, and Ken mm-hmm. Holland has indicated that's the owner that we have right now who's going to keep spending right. the cap. So it's one thing to have that owner, but it's a different thing to have the owner who's going to just keep lavishing extra money as Cates has done in recent years, right? Just he's lavished extra money. I don't think, I'm not so sure Cates is that owner anymore, or or actually very many of them are that owners anymore in the NHL. But the interesting thing, Bruce, is all of this talk Mm -hmm. about all these teams that are going to be under cap, that Mm -hmm. that are going to have an internal cap of 70 million or 75 million. I mean, this, that radically alters the NHL's uh, pay scales and the Oilers, again, this is my thought, be patient, Ken Holland. Don't don't jump at anything because unless it, unless it meets your internal criteria for you know making a good move, which which should be conservative. Because I think prices are coming down, and maybe you can get, let's say, when you play musical goalie chairs, Anti Ranta, uh, or or I don't think it's going to be Camper. I think he's going to be the highest value on the market. Okay. Uh, but let's say it's Anton Hudobin for for whatever reason. Suddenly you can get the, the goalies at the highest even strength safe percentage in the NHL the last two years, maybe on a one year deal for two million dollars. Like out of the question? I don't think it's I don't think it's out of the question. We just don't know. It until we start to see 
$5 million for Leonard over five years sounded kind of low to me, though, Bruce. I like right. the sound of that. So, but shutting uh, the market low, yeah. Hudobin is kind of a special case because of his brilliant performance in the playoffs. I think that'll inflate his value. But you might yes. get a, a perfectly serviceable uh, uh, experienced goalie like, say, Peter Mrazek to run a, you know, 1-1-A with yeah. Hudobin at, at a reasonable number and get him on the open market. Or you know, trade at a at a at a reasonable um, value going the other way. So it's uh, they got they got lots of options, and it's too bad. What <clears throat> the biggest option that you need that you can have in this league is cap space, and unfortunately, like there's a lot of bargains to be had this summer. I suspect on the trade market, teams willing to move on from good players who are pricey, but you got to have the cap space and the deep pockets to. Uh, to handle that, and the orders have may have the deep pockets, but they don't have the cap space because they got five million dollars tied up in Benoit Pouliot, Andrei Sekera, Milan Lucic, uh, last year's bonus overages. You know, I mean, these chickens come home to roost, and they're going to keep on roosting for a few years because, unfortunately, some of these commitments are through 2023. Sins of the past. I wrote in a recent post, and and I stand correct. I take your point on Hudobin's playoff performance. Probably bad example for me, like for someone who's going to get a two million dollar a year contract. But you never like, we just don't know with this market because there are teams with a lot of cap space, like Ottawa, New Jersey, and but are they going to spend it? Like, mm -hmm. are those teams who have had low cap hits in recent years are they willing to spend? And there's an there's some indication that some of them aren't. Florida. So if if you go into these you know, suddenly $3 million of cap space might seem a lot more than it was in the past. Um, when you don't have all these teams yeah. counting on getting this huge amount of money back in revenue sharing, that's not going to happen as much. Suddenly $3 million might get you a really good hockey player this year, or $2 million might get you a really good hockey player. Because this is, because $3 million is, is six, it's yesterday's $6 million. Right. Um, at least in this or, market, or a four million dollar player, veteran player with name recognition, who's actually only owed one point five million, might get you another four million dollar player back, who's owed the four million. I mean, you, that's yeah. another way you can you can uh, leverage the market if you've got those kind of contracts. And the Oilers have one. It's obvious who I'm referencing there. Chris Russell, yeah, right, correct, yeah. and. Um, yeah, his value, because Chris Russell can still help you win in the NHL. He's a good hockey player, but he's he's just that much more enticing to a team. He can help you compete and, and you know, you know, but put on it, put on an NHL caliber team on the ice. He can help with that. I mean, some of these teams that are going to be bailing on 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 real money contracts aren't looking to compete so much as they are to survive. And if there's Hang one thing there. that describes Chris Russell, he is a survivor. <laughs> uh, so, in terms of uh, surviving this COVID pandemic, the Oilers have taken an interesting tack, along with another of other NHL teams. It would be interesting to compare the rosters to see how many um, players various teams have placed. Be hard to do that, eh? But um, yeah, I'd love to see a full full list. I just went through, it took me quite a while to go through just the Oilers, but to, to do it for all the teams, maybe there's a master list somewhere. I, I, I heard, 
Yeah, At go one ahead. point, I heard the Oilers had nine players loaned out, and they were tied with one other team that had nine. And so they've done a, a good job. With eight or seven. Yeah, they, they, I, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't think there's any question that they've done a good job of <clears throat> finding homes. I mean, they got three of their top six prospects who are Canadian-born who don't have any roots in any of these uh, European domestic leagues, so they've managed to place over there in Evan Bouchard, Raphael Lavoie, and uh, Ryan McLeod. And they've all turned up in, in different leagues overseas uh, uh, with not only place to play, but uh, in two of those cases, the opportunity to return for training camp and, and compete for a job on the Oilers when the time comes. So that's good. And that the rest, of, I mean, part of it's just the, the nature of the prospect pool. The Oilers have so many uh, European uh, trained players. I mean, you mentioned one already, Dmitry Samarkov, uh, Kirill Maximov, that are both on the same team, the former Central Red Army team in, in Moscow. Uh, you've got, you know, Philip Broberg just returning to Sweden. You've got Philip Bergman returning to Sweden. You've got... Uh, uh, Marcus Niemelainen and returning to Finland, uh, Theodore Landstrom returning to Sweden, and then even a couple of guys off the NHL roster in uh, uh, Joachim Nygaard and Gaetan Haas, who are both being returned to the teams they came from in Sweden and Switzerland, respectively, just on loan until the Oilers camp is ready. But in the meantime, these guys have a chance to play, to stay, to get in better shape and be ready to come in for camp loaded for bear as opposed to having been off off skates for nine months you know so it's uh uh i think they've done a i think they've done a solid job they're still looking for a place for tyler benson they're still looking for a place for olivier rodrigue there's still work to be done but the work that has been done <clears throat> incrementally player by player uh, i think uh, it's uh, my take is one to commend Ken Holland and the Oilers, and in some cases the players themselves, Raphael Lavoie, I guess, under, did a lot of his own work in finding a home in the Swedish first division. Uh, and, you know, credit to him. I mean, rather have these guys playing than not playing, and the only question is what is the risk of them, you know, uh, contracting COVID and having, you know, an issue. This is, uh, this is the big unknown, and Unfortunately, the you know some of the big unknown is is the the seemingly real possibility of some of these heart problems that you hear about affecting people that that catch it that you know that uh, that's kind of scary stuff for sure. Yeah, I I see. I think the general feeling, Bruce, is that the younger, healthier people with robust immune systems tend to weather this very well, and it's and it's it's older people that are more at risk of of, of every single problem with this. So, well, other, other than the heart thing, and I mean some of the football things, mind you, you're talking about 320 pound uh, offensive linemen when you're talking about football players. Sometimes that's not yeah. What's their BMI? Hockey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. Anyway, it's it's a uh, it's a concern. Let's put it that way. That uh, we we still you know, we still haven't got a full handle on this bloody thing and 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 what its long term impact is going to be on people of all ages. So there's there's some risk. Yeah. You know the other thing I would what's the risk of playing as compared to being a young guy not playing and right. living life like young guys live? Is it is the risk less? I mean, in the bubble, there was all the fears about the bubble. 
there's obviously been less risk, I think, to people inside oh. the bubble than outside the bubble. Zero that's, positive tests. That's, that's the fact of the matter. So like there was all, oh, they're going to, you know, but actually the players who are outside the bubble are at more risk. So we don't know the comparative risk for these players, whether inside these leagues or outside. Is it less? Is it more? Probably depends what city you're in and what's the level of outbreak in that city. And we literally Sweden has had no deaths apparently for like a week, a few deaths this week. So, but will that continue? We don't. There's just all of these uncertainties around this whole thing that 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 we do not know. It's interesting to me that all these European leagues are starting up though, and yeah. in North America there's a different there's a different mindset. Maybe because there's a oh. different level. Maybe we're later in the whole cycle of the disease again who knows maybe we just have a different mindset but a lot of these european leagues do seem to be getting going and are determined to get going and are getting going and uh in finland as well you know finland's had a much stricter lockdown policy than sweden but we have leagues in both of those countries that are getting going so mm -hmm. uh, the europeans just at this point in terms of sports are seem to be more open to getting things going than north right. americans and i don't know why that is well, in some places, I mean, they have different protocols in different countries. I mean, there's the Allsvenskan that Evan Bouchard's playing. The first two weeks of games have been postponed, and they're starting first of October instead of middle of September. Okay. On the other hand, you have the interesting case of Jokerit, Finnish team Jokerit that joined the KHL a couple of years ago. And here's a tweet that I put up in my uh, uh, in my post last night from Joki Nevalainen, who's a Finnish insider. And he says, only in the KHL. Neftekimik comes to Finland with COVID-19. Jokerit are put on two-week quarantine. Five games get postponed. Neftekimik postpones just one game and now continues to play as per usual. And the Russian media blames Jokerit for messing up the schedule. <laughs> Neftekimik, they went home and they had seven positive tests. Now, I'm not sure if that's all players or team personnel or whatever, but seven. Uh -huh. You know, it's some players for sure. And they only missed... They, they put off one game and then they went back to playing. So, but Jokerit being under the Finnish health authorities, being exposed enough to Himmick, they were, they were compelled uh, to undergo a two-week quarantine. So they can't. They already canceled or postponed one game, and the next four games are have all been put off. So, it's going to be like baseball. They're going to have some catching up to do. All oh, those Russians. <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, every country's different. Like you know, who would have expected? you know, what we know about Sweden, right? You know, you know, being a very welfare state, very careful about everything. And then being the most open country in the world in terms of, well, one of them, in terms of, of uh, not having a lockdown. It's just very different uh, cultures around this public health in different countries. And it's not predicted uh, necessarily even from past behavior. Like again, I would have expected Sweden would have been one of the really super careful countries but they're, they, they've got this very kind of fatalistic, stoic attitude about it. Now, soldier on. So, and clearly Russia's in the same boat, but Finland isn't. They're much more like we are in Canada where they're, they're, they're taking a more cautious approach. So, and, and Bruce, my, my point is on this. We will, I don't think we will know for a year or two who took the right approach. It, it may be as long as that before we understand which countries got it right and which countries got it wrong. If we ever understand that, it might always be in a haze of political partisan uh, battling over over the issue. So in any case, we do know that the European leagues are starting up 
and that um, lots of Oilers players are over there. And I think it's just fantastic work. Uh, to the extent that the Oilers have facilitated this, and I understand there's someone on staff who's working on this um, pretty much full time. Um, that that it's that this is an excellent development for the Oilers, and I really give credit to Raphael Lavoie, who you you pointed out in your post, seems to have worked a lot of this on his own and found a place mm -hmm. for himself to play. That was just for his own development as a player. It's just fantastic that he took matters into his own hands. It's very. I mean, one thing the NHL teams do have in matters like this is experience from all those friggin' lockouts, <laughs> three different times that NHL stopped. Yes. It's true. No good reason. And they wound up having to place a lot of their players overseas, including a lot of NHLers. And that's, they're a little harder to place this time because, for example, the Swedish Hockey League, which would be a very popular landing spot, uh, was so uh, messed up by the last lockout where they had a bunch of NHLers and they all up and left halfway through the season to go back to the NHL that they kind of passed the rule about it and said that, you know, if you're signing a one-year deal in Sweden, you're playing the whole season uh, with very few exceptions. I, I think, uh, for instance, um, Broberg has an exception because he was in the league last year and he's carrying on with his same team, that he can be released for training camp is how I understand it. And honestly, I'm not sure that I got all the details right on every player because it's not spelled out anywhere particularly well. But my understanding is Broberg... Because he was a, a SHL player with Shaleptia last year, and he's back with that team now, he can he can negotiate a release to at least come over to a training camp and, and compete for a spot. And other guys, I mean, Lavoie, he, he's there for the year. And the thing there, of course, is that their year will be over in March or April like normal, assuming that there's no postponements, uh, no lockdowns. Uh, and those players can come back, and the NHL might still have two months to go. So that, those guys might potentially be facing a super long season, uh, but have a chance to, you know, come back and still get your, you know, NHL cup of coffee or your AHL time in addition to the, the season of training in, in Europe. So there's uh, there's possible good outcomes from all this. If if it's Rodrigue and Skinner, the goalies. I think they should be, if they have a chance to go there and they have to stay the whole year, if that's the deal, they should go um, and stay the whole year because they both need a full year of development still. And if they're going to get, especially if they're going to go get playing time, let's say in the same league that Bouchard's in, which I'm avoiding pronouncing. Um, Svenskin? Yeah, the Allsvenskin, is that it? Mm -hmm. uh, if they could go there and get playing time, like half the playing time, they should go be there the whole year with Benson Tyler Benson it's a bit more complicated because he doesn't have a real chance of making the orders the windows there right now so he could maybe go to like like Bouchard did go to the Osvenskin and get um that opportunity to to be on a team and practice and so I hope they can quickly work that out he'd be a very good player in that league Tyler Benson would be mm -hmm. and um but I, you could see the hesitation of a team taking on too many guys like that right for a short amount of time it's almost like a favor um, that the Swedish teams are doing. Although, who knows? They could have Evan Bouchard for, in the end, they could have him for four or five months. We do, we still don't know, right? They might have him for the whole season. Who knows? Or they might have him for... Yeah. Or, uh, you know, they might... Order, you could see a scenario where the Oilers bring him back for camp, decide he's not ready for the team, and send him back. Yeah. To 
play out the season. And, and in the meantime, they've got a you know a top ten NHL draft choice on their team in the Swedish second division. I mean, there's lots, there's positive. I mean, their fans get to see a pretty good player for the starters. So yeah, they get more excitement uh, for the team. Like 100%. Tyler Benson, he's the best player. He goes to any Allsvenska team. And he's probably the best player on the team, or the second best player, right? So uh, yeah, he'd be near the, he'd be one of them. So hopefully that happens soon. Alrighty, Bruce. Well, thanks for thanks for talking today. Right. Well, thanks for uh, listening, everyone. Get over that uh, head wound there, uh, David. We'll see you in, I'm sure, a better shape by uh, this time next podcast. <laughs> I was just thinking of my friend, uh, he, 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 he smacked his head water ski. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we called him uh, for a while, Bobby Bruce head. Oh. I didn't ask you, how did your teammate fare? I mean, he, he went head to head with you. Did he get banged up as well? He was fine. He was yeah. fine. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah, he, uh, he was apologizing, but really it was both, you know, you have a head to head collision like that. It's both our faults. Uh, we were both, um, coming right right at each other needed to have my needed to have our heads up a little bit more but what what you find when you actually play hockey is how absolutely utterly difficult a game it is even at the lowest possible level of hockey and how claustrophobic it is when you get the puck um the tunnel vision is extreme so um that's my own experience playing hockey and it's good to play the game to remind uh yourself myself of just what a challenging game hockey is so all right thanks bruce thanks for talking and in the meantime and in between times this has been another edition of the cult of hockey podcast